You are listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Kira McKinley goes over campus news with information on CSU's research to predict hurricanes. Then, Ellie Shannon covers local news with details on an accidental shooting death in Fort Collins. Then, Coda Babcock goes over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies. Following that, we hear from Kristen Kandelaf about Habitat for Humanity's reopening of their ReStore shop. After that, Babcock goes over information on the status of two criminal cases in Texas. Then we hear from Anton Schindler with baseball season previews and predictions, and Eliza Droder goes over details on CSU athletics. Then we hear from Bridget Bandel with a warm weather playlist. To conclude today's show, I explain updates on technology with information on Elon Musk's decision to not join Twitter's board. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Kira McKinley reporting your campus news for Tuesday, April 12th. Colorado State University has partnered with Parker Dewey, a technology company, to create a micro-internship platform for students to find a short-term internship that will hopefully lead to a full-time job one day. According to CSU Source News, micro-internships allow students to get work experience without having to commit to interning for a whole semester or summer. Most internships are between 5 to 40 hours. CSU hopes that this platform will attract small businesses that want to offer internship opportunities but may not have the capacity to provide traditional internships to students. To sign up for or to get more information about internships, go to info.parkerdewey.com slash state. Researchers from CSU claim that the Atlantic 2022 hurricane season will be particularly active, according to CSU Source News. They have so far named nine hurricanes, four of which are currently predicted to be Category 3, 4, and 5 storms. This research team has now forecasted 39 hurricane seasons. The research team uses a statistical model along with three other information sources from forecast stations all around the world, so they can gather the most accurate information to predict the upcoming hurricane season. ASCSU had a session take place last Thursday. They heard various pieces of legislation, one of which was Resolution 5109, which is a united call from 120 universities all throughout the country for the federal government to cancel student debt. The resolution was sent to the University Affairs Committee, according to Piper Russell of the Collegian. Thank you for listening to my CSU campus news updates. I'm Kim McKinley, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Here's Ellie Shannon with your local news updates. This is your local news for Tuesday, April 12th. Colorado State University is going to be using funds from its sale of the former Hughes Stadium property to pay nearly $5 million in coaching buyouts. CSU recently told the Coloradoan it plans to use up to $5 million to pay for the nearly $2 million buyout for newly hired head football coach Jay Norvell and $3 million for fired coach Steve Adazio. CSU is currently paying for three buyouts for football head coaches, with Mike Bobo still being bought out. Bobo was replaced by Adazio following the 2018 football season and is still owed one last payment of approximately $600,000 per an agreement following his resignation settlement. A six-year-old boy died on Sunday night in Fort Collins after a possible self-inflicted gunshot wound. Officers responded to a 911 call that came from a home stating a six-year-old had shot himself. The boy was taken to a nearby hospital where he ultimately died of his injuries. Preliminary findings from the investigation indicate that the shooting may have been accidental, but no further details have been released. 
The public will be updated on the case when there are more findings, according to the Larimer County Sheriff's Office. Rocky Mountain National Park Rangers are currently investigating the illegal removal of the skull and massive antler of one of the most beloved elk bulls. The approximately 10-year-old bull was reportedly injured during last fall's rutting season, meaning the season where male bull elk battle for the right to breed. According to Miles Bloomhart of the Coloradoan, the elk is also known as the Big Kahuna to many wildlife photographers and died about a month ago. Park rangers are asking anyone with information regarding the case to call the park's tip line at 970-586-1393. That's all for your local news. Thanks for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review every Tuesday and Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is KCSU on 90.5. We'll be right back. Want to hear more community news content like this? Support KCSU by donating at kcsufm.com donate or by calling 970-491-5278. You can also donate on Venmo at KCSUFM. We're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of campus and local news with Kira McKinley and Ellie Shannon, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Cutta Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports over 8,200 cases of COVID-19 since the university began recording in May 2020. Yesterday, 10 new cases were reported, with seven among students and three among staff and faculty. CSU no longer requires the masks on campus, with the exception of some facilities like the CSU Health Network. Larimer County reports over 79,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 480 deaths. The county reports a low community COVID-19 level overall, but the seven-day case rate has risen to 93 cases per 100,000 residents, about double what it was just two weeks ago. 5% of all tests administered in the county came back positive in the past week. New COVID-19-related hospital admissions remain low, and COVID-19 patients take up about 1% of inpatient hospital beds in the county. The state of Colorado reports over 1.3 million COVID-19 cases and over 13,000 deaths. 4.8 million people have received testing in the state, and over 61,000 total people are hospitalized in Colorado. 10.5 million vaccines have been administered for COVID-19 in the state, and almost 4 million Coloradans are fully immunized against COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report over 80 million COVID-19 cases in the U.S., along with over 980,000 deaths. Cases have started to rise while deaths are plateauing nationally. 82% of the total U.S. population is at least partially vaccinated against COVID-19. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for Tuesday's COVID-19 updates. 
Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you are a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. The Fort Collins Habitat for Humanity Restore is reopening on Earth Day on April 22nd after recent renovations. Today, I'm joined by Kristen Candela, the Executive Director and CEO for Habitat of Humanity here in Fort Collins, to talk about the mission of Restore and Habitat Humanity and what you can expect at the reopening. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here, Coda. Thank you. Of course. First off, can you tell us a little bit about what Habitat Humanity is and its local operations here in Fort Collins? Sure, absolutely. It's fun to be talking to you right now because I'm in Atlanta for the Habitat National Conference. Habitat for Humanity is a global organization that builds homes in 70 countries plus throughout the world. And we are bringing home ownership to families and individuals earning a low to moderate income. So our home buyers actually build their home with volunteers and then they buy it with a low or no interest mortgage from us. So in Fort Collins, we've built about 90 homes and we are currently building uh, 48 homes on the Southeast corner of Taft Hill and Harmony Roads in Fort Collins near JJ's gas station. All right. And then kind of on that topic, how do you personally think that Habitat for Humanity really works to end the cycle of poverty through housing? And how does Restore tie into that? That is such a great question. Homeownership is incredibly important to building generational wealth. So when we think about ending the cycle of poverty, we really want to help people build wealth. And Americans traditionally have their savings in their home. And so get, getting people access and a stepping stone into home ownership is, is really important. It is not a Band-Aid. It really can change generations. You know, I've been with Habitat for 17 years, so I've gotten to see little kiddos that grew up in their Habitat home now be seniors at CSU studying structural engineering and, you know, saying things like, I was inspired by the volunteers, and so I wanted to build something that mattered you know, to see that kind of life change that might not have happened without the stability of a home, a home that they got to stay in and didn't have to move every year uh, is really, it's really a beautiful thing to see. The Restore really is our, it's our cathedral within, if you will. So as a builder, we would have people donating, you know, building supplies and home goods, and then people wanted to donate furniture. And so the Restore was born. Um, the Restore is actually a home goods, vehicles, decor, appliances. It's the big giant store where you can buy things that have been gently loved previously and upcycle them and bring them into your homes and do your own updating. And our, our thrift store is actually right across from where we're building our homes. So it is at 4001 South Taft Hill Road. And um, we are reopening it. So it's going to be a whole new experience for our customers and donors. Okay. And then speaking of what kind of renovations can returning customers expect if they come and see Restore this Earth Day for the reopening? Yeah, I'm pretty excited for people to see it. If you haven't been in in a while, you will notice a massive change. The Restore has been there for over 20 years now and has been raising funds that actually help build our habitat homes. And 
it's a different place entirely. There's a new sign, there's new paint on the outside and on the inside. The old carpet is gone, it's polished concrete. It just looks fresh and clean and new and it, you won't see it in full glory yet, but the Audubon Society actually partnered with us to remove the sod so that it would match the culture of habitat and sustainable building and sustainable work. And so we no longer have sod. We have pollinator-friendly gardens all around the building now. And it, But it's not just that. It's not just the building. Because if you're coming to shop, you want to know there's good stuff, right? You want to come and get a great deal. So that is also really exciting. We have a boutique inside for any uh, grand millennials out there. It's really cool shopping, kind of that mix of new and used and modern and also traditional. There's these just really fun items that you can find merchandise inside the shed. But for people who still like to treasure hunt, that also exists. There's the pile of things you can go through and find things that you can take home and, and DIY yourself and upcycle if that's something you're good at. Uh, I like to get it already done and have it look like I did it. So we also have those items. All right. And then on that topic, what makes Restore different from other secondhand stores in town? You know, I, I think one, the people. I'm, of course, very biased. There's You're going to have a great experience shopping at the Restore because the people who work there really believe in what they're doing, saving hundreds of thousands of tons of items out of the landfill. But they also really believe in building homes and, and the mission of Habitat for Humanity and that it's local. That what, what thrift store can you stand in and look out and there are the homes that your purchase is helping to build? It's literally right across the street. You can see the neighborhood coming up while you're shopping. And that's that's pretty special. All right. And then how does Restore's commitment to reuse really help to align with sustainability and make the Earth Day reopening make sense? Well, and it makes sense in every way. I think we're all thinking, how do we leave less of a, a carbon footprint? How do we uh, care for what we have instead of generating more and more mass-produced items that end up in the landfill? I think it it it's our very mission is sustainability at the restore, you know, and I we want homes for people and we want to be able to update and live in a quality, comfortable space that feels like us. That's what the restore allows people to do without going to a big, big box store. It allows people to support sustainability while also updating their own homes and their own spaces. You know, and I, I think that's that's really what Habitat is about is, is ownership, you know, ownership of your space and ownership of the community and world around us and doing the best you can while, while also existing here and needing a, needing a place to live yourself. All right. And then how do you think that Habitat for Humanity uses sustainability in their greater mission to alleviate poverty in our community? And why is it important to combine the two? You know, I, people sometimes want to disconnect building housing from sustainability, like they're opposites. But in reality, you drive less, which is our greatest source of carbon emissions, if you can live near where you work. So building in this really smart way where you're using the land to its capacity 
and where you're building in green open spaces and common areas where people can gather is, is a great way to use what we have sustainably. So for example, in the neighborhood right across the street, there are 48 homes with common areas, really great usable porches. So you can sit and talk to your neighbors and have a community feeling, but we've also integrated really highly energy efficiency features and even solar on many of the homes. So the homes themselves are much more energy efficient than something that was built, you know, 40, 50 years ago. But we've also lowered the utility payments for the homeowners by making the home super energy efficient. So you can build it to be more sustainable. And that's what we're trying to do. All right. And then will Restore be accepting item donations prior to the reopening? And how can people help out with that? Absolutely. We're happy to accept donations and you can call the Fort Collins Habitat Restore or you can go online to make a donation. And you can find us uh, if you just Google Fort Collins Habitat for Humanity Restore. And we even have a truck to come and pick up items if you have big, gently loved items that we can bring into our store. So we appreciate donations as well. And then also on that topic, if anyone really wants to support the local programming of Habitat for Humanity and Restore, but don't have items or financial donations to offer, how can they help further the mission? You know, you can come and swing a hammer. We love having volunteers out. They will show you which end of the hammer to use if you have absolutely no experience or if you have some skills, they'll put those to use as well. We do the entire build process minus the trades with volunteers. And so you're invited. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I'm just a proud CSU Ram and myself. And uh, thank you for having us on and appreciate you supporting your local uh, restore. All right. Thank you so much again for joining me today. Uh, happy Earth Day. All right. Happy Earth Day. Habitat for Humanities, Fort Collins Restore location reopens at 4001 South Taft Hill on Friday, April 22nd, and will be celebrating their new space and sustainable agenda with a sale that Friday and Saturday. To learn more, you can visit fortcollinshabitat.org. We'll be right back. What's up? I'm DJ Mads. Tune in from 5 to 7 p.m. tonight to hear what theme I've got in store for you. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News, and you're listening to National News for Tuesday. 
U.S. citizens can now opt for an X gender marker on passport applications. According to Joe Hernandez from National Public Radio, the U.S. previously only offered an option for male and female gender markers, but after an intersex and non-binary person from Fort Collins won a federal lawsuit this year against the State Department, the third option is now offered to accurately reflect the gender identity of non-binary, gender non-conforming, and intersex people in the U.S. Dana Zim previously was the first person in Colorado to receive state documents reflecting their intersex non-binary identity. For those who might be unfamiliar, an intersex person is someone with both male and female biological traits, such as a person with multiple types of genitalia or a pair of internal testes where ovaries would be expected. Prior to this, intersex people could not accurately reflect their birth sex on legal documents, just as non-binary people could not reflect their gender identity on these documents. As of Monday, passport applications now feature the X option in the gender marker selection area. X is used to offer an option for what the State Department refers to as, quote, unspecified or another gender identity, end quote. A Texas prosecutor is dismissing charges against a woman who was arrested after giving herself an abortion. Daniel Troda at Reuters reports that a 26-year-old woman was arrested. The Star County Sheriff's Department said that Lisea Herrera, quote, intentionally and knowingly caused the death of an individual by self-induced abortion, end quote. Star County District Attorney Gosha Allen Ramirez announced plans to dismiss her charges Sunday, saying, quote, In reviewing applicable Texas law, it is clear that Ms. Herrera cannot and should not be prosecuted for the allegations against her, end quote. Herrera was arrested last Thursday after being indicted for the self-induced abortion. Ricky Gonzalez, founder of the abortion assistance group La Frontera Fund, said Herrera, quote, miscarried at a hospital and allegedly confided to hospital staff that she had attempted to induce her own abortion, end quote. Herrera will not be charged in this case based on statements from District Attorney Ramirez. A mother of 14 faces execution in Texas this month with her children pleading for the governor to grant clemency. CBS News reports that after five hours of interrogation, Melissa Lucio continuously denied guilt for the death of her daughter. Lucio was found guilty in 2008 after her two-year-old daughter, Mariah, died. The family says it was an accident and that Mariah died while falling down a flight of stairs. Her family, along with many state lawmakers, are arguing to keep her alive. While Lucio was charged with child negligence prior to the incident, her children argue that Mariah's death was not intentional and that Lucio is not directly responsible for it. While Lucio and her children told police at the scene what happened, a medical examiner marked Mariah's cause of death as child abuse based on bruises. Lucio was pregnant with twins at the time of her interrogation by police. In the recordings, an officer asks Lucio if she's a cold-blooded killer and accuses her of taking out her frustration on two-year-old Mariah. Vanessa Potkin, director of special litigation with the Innocence Project, says that Lucio denied accusations of murder over 100 times, telling officers that she'd only previously spanked her daughter. Potkin said, quote, They refused to listen to her, sending the clear message that this interrogation wasn't going to stop until she told the officers what they wanted to hear, end quote. Jurors did not hear any testimonies from Lucio's children prior to sentencing her to death despite her sons Bobby Alvarez and John Lucio fighting for her life and arguing that she is innocent. As a result, some of the jury members responsible for her sentencing are advocating alongside her children to save her from execution on April 27th. President Joe Biden plans to nominate someone to run the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Michael Balsamo from the Associated Press reports that the White House confirmed Biden's plans to nominate U.S. Attorney Steve Dettelbach to the seat. 
Dadelbach served as a U.S. attorney in Ohio during the Obama administration from 2009 to 2016. Dadelbach can expect to face a controversial confirmation process, which only one nominee has ever made it through since the position began requiring confirmation in 2006. Along with his nomination, the Biden administration plans to release its ghost gun rule, which focuses on regulating untraceable firearms. Biden's ghost gun rule has been working through federal regulations processes for about a year and is expected to be met with resistance, including lawsuits from gun rights groups. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News. And up next, we're hearing from Anton Schindler with a Major League Baseball preview, along with the predictions he expects on the current season. After an incredibly long offseason that was plagued by controversy and the work stoppage, I can finally say that baseball is back. Looking over the schedule, there should be a lot of really exciting baseball to kick off the regular season with a bang. Tomorrow, Friday, April 8th, has a full 13-game schedule, starting off at 11.05 a.m. Mountain Time, and will be the opening day for 16 teams in the MLB. Yankees and Red Sox, who are one of the biggest rivalries in baseball, We'll start Friday's games off, followed by the White Sox and Tigers, shortly before the Athletics and Phillies play again for the first interleague game of the year. The Orioles and Rays start at 1:10, followed by the Rockies and Dodgers, as well as the Mariners and Twins, which will both start at 2:10 Mountain Time. A couple innings later, the Marlins and Giants will start their battle, with the Rangers and Blue Jays capping off the first games for the remainder of the teams. So, by Saturday, April 9th, all teams will have played at least one game, and the season will be officially underway. So in this week's episode of Painting the Corners, I want to do a bit of a preview of the 2022 MLB season, and run through some predictions I have for how the season will turn out in each division in the American and National League. I'll also highlight some records to look out for, some players that you should watch out for, and some other interesting facts to get you ready for the 2022 MLB regular season. So, let's get into it. Let's start with the American League first, and more specifically, the American League East. Now, I personally think, based on the performances from last year, that this is going to be one of the toughest divisions in baseball. And just about every single one of the teams in this division are capable of going absolutely insane. I mean, let me put it this way. In 2021, four out of the five teams in the East, the Rays, Red Sox, Yankees, and Blue Jays, all had 90-plus win seasons. The Rays, Red Sox, and Yankees all made the playoffs. So here's what I'm thinking. I think the top three will be populated by the Rays, Red Sox, and Blue Jays, with the Yankees coming in fourth place. But I expect all four of these teams to have at least 90 wins on the season once again. As far as placing goes, I think I would go with the Red Sox in first, followed by the Blue Jays, then the Rays, and then the Yankees, with the Orioles picking up the rear once again, despite the pretty impressive young talent that populates that team. I genuinely believe that the Orioles may have a winning season too if this talent can really develop into the potential that they obviously have. The American League Central seems a little more straightforward 
as I think it'll be another shootout between the White Sox and the Guardians for first place in the division. Both the Twins and the Tigers made some decent offseason moves and trades, making me think that they'll be more competitive this year as well. But I believe the pitching from the Guardians and the bats in Chicago will keep these two teams at the top. So here's my ranking for the American League Central. I think the White Sox will get first place again, followed by the Guardians, who will finish a few games back in second. The Minnesota Twins will get to third place, followed by the Javier Baez and Miguel Cabrera Tigers, and the Royals in last place. The Royals do have a bit of a promising year ahead of them, with Salvador Perez coming off of his career season in 2021, and the brand new MLB top prospect Bobby Witt Jr. joining the team in Kansas City. The American League West is next, and to be honest with you, I think this division is going to wrap up in a pretty similar fashion as it was last year. I think the Astros will still take the division, but it's going to be really interesting to watch how the division plays out with the, the developments the Seattle Mariners have been doing to hopefully get their team back into the playoffs for the first time in a long time. I think these two have the first two spots occupied pretty comfortably with the Angels squirming their way into third. I think the only way that the Angels could move up this season is if Mike Trout stays healthy and Otani continues to play as well as he has been since he came to the MLB. I think the Texas Rangers, with all their new additions to the team, including Corey Seager, Marcus Simeon, and John Gray, will come in fourth place with the Oakland Athletics taking up the rear in what seems like a bit of a rebuilding year for the Athletics. As far as the National League goes, we'll start with the NL East, the home division of the World Series champion Atlanta Braves. The Braves were division winners last year in the East, and I think that there's a pretty good chance that that will happen again in 2022, despite the loss of their star first baseman, Freddie Freeman. I think second place will be a bit of a toss-up between the Phillies and the Mets once again, even though the Mets seem to be fan favorites for going far into this season. I expect the Miami Marlins to actually have a good year this year and go over 500 in terms of wins and losses but still just lose out and end up in fourth place, more than likely. There's a lot of good young talent and team chemistry on that Marlins team, as well as guys like Jazz Chislam and Sixto Sanchez who can really take the Marlins team far. Unfortunately for Juan Soto and his crew, I think the Nationals will once again take up the rear of the division, just a few years off of their World Series championship run. The National League Central is next, and this one is going to be a real challenge to decide who is going to take the division. I think it's going to be another toss-up between the Milwaukee Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals, as both teams are very strong and very capable of making it to the playoffs. And third, I believe that Joey Votto and Jonathan India and the like will get the Reds to at least a 500 or close to a 500 record, much like last season, with the Cubs moving back and forth with them all season. I think that's going to be a really good battle for that third and fourth spot. 
And finally, I wouldn't be surprised if the Pirates fill that last space in the NL Central as not many offseason moves were made to help the team improve that greatly. And finally, the National League West, which once again will more than likely be won by the Dodgers. The Dodgers made a lot of huge blockbuster moves during the offseason, which should keep them secured in first for much of the season. But I would expect to see some pressure from some of the other teams in the NL West. I think the Padres, Giants, and Rockies will all split time in second, third, and fourth place, with each team really being kind of similarly built. I mean, if Fernando Tatis can stay healthy this season, the Padres will more than likely get second. If the Giants find the same magic that they had last season, I think that they could also make a pretty impressive run. And if the Rockies' offseason moves, including the signing of Chris Bryant and helping to really beef up the pitching staff, if all of that pays out, I think they could also make a pretty good run in the NL West. And finally, I think the Diamondbacks will sit in last place once again, but not by much. They've been one of the worst teams in baseball the past two seasons, but just knowing this franchise and the way that they kind of build themselves, I think that they'll find a way to stay at least relevant in the National League West. Let's move on now to the milestone watch for the MLB, starting with hitting records that can and more than likely will be broken in 2022. Miguel Cabrera, the longtime Detroit Tiger, is just 13 hits away from 3,000 hits in his career. Nelson Cruz and Elvis Andrus are 87 and 136 hits away from 2,000 hits in their career as well. Albert Pujols needs just 14 more hits to move up to 11th all-time in the career leaders category a list that he could move up quite a ways based on the amount of playtime that he gets with the Cardinals this season. Nelson Cruz is just one home run away from 450 home runs in his career, with Giancarlo Stanton only needing three home runs to get to 350 career home runs. As far as pitching goes, Max Scherzer, Clayton Kershaw, and Adam Wainwright are all within 16 wins away from their 200 career win milestone, with Serger only needing 64 more strikeouts to pass John Smoltz on the all-time leader list for strikeouts. Craig Kimbrell is 28 saves away from a career 400 saves, which would put him in the top seven save leaders of all time, right behind the Hall of Famer Dennis Eckersley. Some players that you should be very excited to see this season include Shohei Otani, one of the best all-around players that can pitch just about as well as he can hit, and Ronald Acuna Jr., who will be making his return to the big leagues after tearing his ACL in July of last season. It'll also be interesting to see how Vladimir Guerrero Jr. performs this year after leading the league in total bases, home runs, slugging percentage, runs scored, and a couple other categories in 2021. Personally, I think that it's going to be really interesting to see how guys like Chris Bryant, Javier Baez, and Freddie Freeman adjust to their new teams. Will they live up to their potential and continue to perform like they had throughout their career, 
Or is it going to be a bit of a learning curve to get back on with a new team? Out of the younger guys, I think Wander Franco should be a must-watch with the Rays, as the former number one prospect in baseball made a huge impact on the Rays last season, during his rookie season in the MLB. Bobby Witt Jr. as well should be an interesting prospect to watch, after making the Royals starting roster thanks to a very impressive spring training. And it's funny because with him, a lot of analysts have been drawing comparisons between Witt and Mike Trout, which, as you can imagine, has to be a bit of an honor, although I'm sure a little bit nerve-wracking, an honor for the young shortstop and third baseman. And what about Seiya Suzuki? the Chicago Cubs' newest right fielder who could be the next star slugger from Japan. In Japan, Suzuki clubbed 30 homers a year over his six full seasons in Nippon professional baseball, with a 317 batting average in those six years. I mean, what's to say that he couldn't do something a lot similar to that in the MLB? And finally, you should be very excited to see what Julio Rodriguez, the number three prospect in baseball, does for the Seattle Mariners this season. Being one of just the most fun guys in baseball to watch, Rodriguez has clubbed a 347 batting average in both double and triple A with a 1.001 OPS, also in both, which is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, those are big league numbers. He's a strong kid with incredible speed and also one of the funniest social media presences you will ever see. <laughs> so there we go. There's your preview for the 2022 MLB regular season as we slide into another fantastic summer filled with baseball once again. I can't wait to Refer back to this episode in October when the playoffs roll around to see just how wrong <laughs> I was with my predictions. But even so, I'm feeling pretty confident about the predictions this year. And just regardless of my predictions and how this season turns out, I'm just so incredibly excited to once again watch some baseball. Thank you for listening. Want to hear more community news content like this? Support KCSU by donating at kcsufm.com donate or by calling 970-491-5278. You can also donate on Venmo at KCSUFM. Welcome to the sports segment of RMR. I'm Jack here, and we're going to take a look at how our Rams are doing. So first off, we got women's softball. They went 13-20 and with two wins and one loss to the New Mexico Lobos this past weekend. And they will be facing UNC tomorrow and Fresno State this weekend. They've been playing great, making a little comeback this season, and we'd love to see that their performance so far. Up next, we got track and field. They just took part in the Colorado Relay hosted by CU. 
with six wins and even three top 20 marks. And we just love to see their phenomenal performance that has always shown with the CSU track team. They're always such a great squad. But on to that, we have women's golf. And they, the Mary B.S. Kuth Invitational was actually canceled for these Rams and are now going to be taking in the Chambers Bay Invitational today and tomorrow. And they've been off to a hot start, placing pretty well. With that, we got men's golf, and they took part in the Wyoming Cowboys Classic this past week. And they tied third out of 25, and they shot very well. And I'm very happy to see the results that they had there. Up next, they have the Western Intercollegiate, and they will be playing today through Wednesday. So make sure you cheer them on this week. Uh, up next, we got women's tennis. They are currently 10-7, and seven, a solid record. And they've won their last two matches against New Mexico and Air Force. The matches against UNLV and San Diego State this past weekend, they actually won against UNLV, but unfortunately dropped to SDSU 2-4. to four. So the next will be Boise State on Friday and Utah State on Saturday. If you're looking for any student tickets, make sure you go to csurams.evnue.net and you can get some great, great experiences with the sports program, and we will love to see you out there. Hello, everyone. I'm Bridget, also known as Briggy Smalls. It has been a second since my last podcast, and if you missed it, I had the amazing opportunity to attend the Houndmouth and Buffalo Nichols concert at the Aggie Theater here in Old Town. It turned out super cool, and it was such a good concert, so if you want to hear more, go check out that podcast. And I'm sorry, I had to plug my first podcast right there because our amazing podcast director, Marie, worked so hard on it to make me sound like I knew what I was talking about. Since that concert, I have been lucky enough to attend a multitude of shows. Cautious Clay at the Bluebird, Sports at the Aggie Theater, Main Squeeze at the Aggie Theater, Lady Denim at the Aggie Theater, Tyler the Creator, Callie Uchis, Vince Staples, all at the Ball Arena, and Boy Pablo, also at the Aggie Theater. And as you can tell, I spend way too much time at the Aggie, but I cannot complain. This time around, I really could not choose which concert to review, so I thought I would switch up the topic. Since March began, here in Colorado, we have had the nicest weather there could possibly be. Does it concern me that there hasn't been much snow and it's been 70 plus degrees? Yeah, it really does. But we're just going to enjoy the moment and bask in the sun. And when the nice weather begins, I feel like I have to automatically change the music I'm listening to in order to reflect a happier and warmer mood. So that's what I will be talking about today. I've selected five songs that are, quote, warm weather must-haves for your playlist this spring or summer. I'll be breaking down each song's vibe, the background behind the song, and the artist. So let's jump right in. The first song we will be adding to our warm weather must-haves is Cape Cod, Kwasa Kwasa, by Vampire Weekend. The song begins with a simple guitar riff, then slowly adds elements like bongos, shakers, and finally in the chorus, more guitars echoing that catchy riff with what seems to be maracas and a cymbal in the background. Vampire Weekend is an indie rock band from New York that formed in 2006 and was very influential in the early 2010s. Their self-titled album, the same album Cape Cod Kwasa Kwasa is on, was also their debut album. It was impactful on the indie community and, quite frankly, my life as well. Each song on the album makes you want to get up and dance and truly does remind you of warmer weather. Mansard Roof is definitely an honorable mention, and so is Oxford Comma, probably my two other favorite songs off the album. 
This song genuinely feels like you're on the beach, not just on Cape Cod, but on a tropical island having no worries in the world. The Vampire Weekend is far from Jimmy Buffett. Those are the vibes I'm getting, sipping on that daiquiri with your toes in the sand or riding your bike in that small beach town sunburnt. Now let's break down the meaning of the song. Cape Cod is obviously a very wealthy beach town, hinting at relaxation and carefree luxury throughout the song. Kwasa is an African dance rhythm that was super popular during the 80s. Though the title refers to a feeling and a rhythm, the song's lyrics tell a story of a couple in Cape Cod. According to Song Meeting, quote, Vampire Weekend seems to be discussing the sheltered, somewhat pampered, wholly nurtured existence of this young couple. There is a curiosity and interest in the world around them, but the various luxuries are a hindrance of growth of their consciousness. This catchy tune is a must-have on your playlist. It might even make you feel like you're that couple they're talking about. The next song that is a warm weather must-have is Dreams by the Cranberries. This song, oh, where do I begin? It almost fades you in with a catchy tune, a simple guitar melody with heavy backing drums, and a psychedelic synth, it sounds like. I know it's not a synth, it's just them being geniuses and playing another electric guitar riff, a bit quieter and groovier for an extra layer of dreaminess, but that's all I can describe it as. As the song progresses, the beat gets heavier and harder, making you want to roll down all the windows and blast this song. Dolores O'Riden's voice is one of a kind. She even fades out the song with her beautiful melodies that are so distinct. It's mwah, chef's kiss. The Cranberries were an Irish rock band formed in 1989 and were not only influential in the music world, but had an impact on the culture when it came to their hit song, Zombie, Discussing War. The Cranberries have always been one of my favorite bands solely because of my dad. He made me watch their Tiny Desk concert one night, and I seriously have never been the same again. If you haven't watched it and you want your mind blown, I recommend it. Let's break down the song. This is a very hopeful song in which Dolores sings about meeting a special someone who makes her deliriously happy. I wrote that about my first love when I was living in Ireland. She said in a Songs Facts interview, it's about feeling really in love for the first time. This song generally will make you feel like you're falling in love, and that feeling plus the warm weather makes it a no-brainer when adding it to the playlist. On to our next, we have Pool House by The Backseat Lovers. Ah, The Backseat Lovers, a classic. And I was going to go see them in Denver last year because it happened to be literally on my birthday, but it was sold out, and I haven't stopped thinking about that missed opportunity ever since. The song starts off with a funny voice memo, then quickly turns into a jazzy drum beat with the background vocals counting down until the guitars come in. It's a calm vibe and makes you just want to sit in the sun. Once the chorus comes in, they begin to scream their heart out and allow the guitar and drums to just let loose and become heavy in a good way. The guitar solo at the end is personally my favorite aspect of the whole song. The Backseat Lovers are an indie rock band from Utah and got together around 2018. Their debut album, When We Were Friends, came out in 2019 and their fans are anticipating their return to music. They have already claimed their name in the indie world and hopefully will continue to grow into a bigger band. This song, again, makes you just want to sit by the pool all day while the sun is just coming down on you, but it also makes you want to headbang at the end, maybe in a field at night, barefoot, and screaming it out loud. Just me? Okay. This song is about trying to find some peace while roaming around a party, which is such a relatable vibe. Alright guys, now we have moved on to another indie classic, Close to You by Dayglow. This song is very 80s inspired and makes you want to do disco moves and just straight up dance. I love the song more than anything, so maybe I'm biased by telling you to put this on your playlist, but this song not only makes you want to dance and roll the windows down and scream your heart out, but this song is also something we can all relate to. 
Dayglow is a solo indie project from Salone Strobel and has been a huge name in the indie world and quite honestly the mainstream indie pop world as well. The song starts off with a catchy synth beat and adds drums and guitar, you know, the classic indie elements. Though synths Strobel decides to use gives it that 80s feel that everyone loves. Strubel explained to Genius what Close to You was about recently. Quote, The song itself is about the tension between two people at a party that never said hello. It is about the excitement and perfect fantasy you play in your head prior to seeing that person, the mediocre and nervous reality of the actual moment you see them, and the letdown that always comes afterwards in not being what you had always and only been living in your head. I envision the song being played inside someone's brain. Kind of like the movie Inside Out, after they're leaving a party thinking about what they wish they would have happened. But in reality, they are actually just singing to and about themselves. We have reached our last song, for now, to be added to your playlist. Let's talk about That's What Makes Me Love You by The Regrets. Starting off with a synth-heavy beat and laughter in the background, this song makes you want to do a little jig. The synths break down right before the chorus, and we are introduced to some classic drum and guitar moments, with synths still being present but The Regrets' classic rock song coming out more. The Regrets are an indie rock punk band with hints of pop from Los Angeles, with their front woman being Lydia Knight. Getting together in only 2017, they have made their mark on the indie rock scene with their unforgettable lyrics and experimental tunes. That's What Makes Me Love You is their second single off their upcoming album, Further Joy. In this song, Knight genuinely just breaks down her relationship and explains all the small things that make her realize she's in love. This song will make you feel like you are in love and you need to run across a field in the middle of nowhere when the sun is setting in a sundress barefoot. The song also will make you want to scream it on the top of your lungs with your best friends in the car with all the windows rolled down, which is the only criteria every single one of these songs must hit to be on the Warm Weathers playlist. Well, those were the five songs I wanted to share with you guys. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and hopefully added these warm weather must-haves to your spring or summer playlist. That's what we do here at KCSU, let you listeners discover new music and hopefully get a closer look at the behind the scenes of the music itself. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and supporting us here at KCSU. It's because of you listeners that I'm able to do cool things like record my own podcast and talk about my favorite songs. I hope you enjoyed my first take on a curated playlist podcast. I will be back next month with another special episode. And I'm sorry, I had a cold this whole time. So my voice sounds a little bit weird. We're just going to ignore it. Okay, peace out. This is Ellie Shannon with your tech news. Elon Musk has declined an offer to join Twitter's board. The deal to have Musk be on the board for the social media app came after he acquired a 9% stake, becoming Twitter's largest individual shareholder. Twitter chief executive Parag Agrawal announced after a background check and formal acceptance that Musk could join the board, but Musk quickly declined within the same morning. Agrawal states that Twitter will remain open to his input, according to the LA Times. A Security and Exchange Commission form that Musk filed on Monday after declining his offer states he may acquire additional common stock from time to time. Netflix is introducing a new button to help the streaming service curate homepages with better recommendations with the two thumbs up button. Netflix stated that this has been a highly requested feature for the company to have. Netflix already has a thumbs up, thumbs down feature, 
but the two thumbs up will allow users to customize their homepage to content they like the most. The company changes and edits their features often, making it one of the most user-focused streaming services. The FDA has announced that a Fitbit feature that passively monitors a user's heart rhythms has been cleared. The feature periodically checks wearers' heart rhythms and alerts them if they show signs of atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is an irregular heartbeat that puts people at a higher risk for stroke. According to Nicole Wetzman of The Verge, Fitbit tested the feature out in 2020, which found that the tech could correctly identify cases of atrial fibrillation 98% of the time. The device cannot make a diagnosis, but it can alert people of atrial fibrillation early on. Thanks for listening to my tech news. This is Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM. And here's information on the weather. Today was cloudy, cool, and windy with a high in the early 50s and a low in the 20s. Tomorrow you can expect temperatures to cool, but weather is to stay about the same with a high in the 40s and a low in the mid-20s. Thursday will warm back up to the mid-50s for the high and just a couple degrees below freezing was low once again with windy and cloudy conditions. And for Friday, tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David Demuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Bandel, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you.